one paragraph that does me three hours, right? Because it, it's very it just efficient. builds. Yes, exactly. I like that. And it was a little bit cheeky. And I said, if you're my doctor, I want you to remember what you learned. Just Snap. Like I'm trying to help us better understand as a culture why we need to pay more attention to imagination as adults. I remember when I was in art history classes, it was memorize this date, memorize the artist, memorize it. It's like, all right, Starry Starry Night, Van Gogh. And I actually forgot the date, which is maybe embarrassing. But, Shame on you. But so, maybe that's the you, point. You didn't wasn't... have an emotional exactly. attachment to that. Hello, and welcome to Earthy Chats, where we're cross-pollinating EnviroEd ideas. We're here to share with you the best environmental education resources available from across Canada and chat with their creators, digging in as to why they do this work, how they do it, and what you can do with it. I'm one of your hosts, Jade Harvey Beryl. I'm the Wild Voices Program Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAM for short, and owner of Stoked on Science, an education company where I deliver environmental and science programs for kindergarten to adults across BC. And I'm another one of your hosts, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher, a global network of environmental educators that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers. Let's get started. And I know for most listeners, we think about imagination mostly in terms of children, in terms of make-believe, in terms of fantasy and fairies, truthfully. Yeah, but oh yeah. that's certainly not how I'm thinking about it. I'm talking about the most profound way in which human beings learn, which is, for example, through the story form. And mm. it's the way in which we remember anything. Yep. The way the poetics of memory all rely on the imagination. Today, for episode one of the podcast, uh, we have uh, Dr. Gillian Judson joining us. She's the assistant professor in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. She teaches in educational leadership and curriculum and instruction programs, and her scholarship looks at imagination's role in leadership and learning uh, from kindergarten to post-secondary. She teaches mostly about an imagination-focused approach to teaching called imaginative education, or IE, and the specific ways to engage imagination in learning all aspects of the curriculum. We often forget that all meaningful and memorable learning uh, involves the imagination. And IE is a core theoretical pillar in the work shared on ImagineEd, which is her very cool blog, you should check it out. Uh, her most recent imagination-inspired area of research is in educational leadership and building new curriculums. Does, does that sum it up? Is that, is that correct? Is that me? I guess it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No big it's deal, too right? Long. It's too long. It's, it's... <laughs> yeah. Just... It's, yeah. I, I sound like I've done a lot. I've done, I've done a lot of digging because I'm really curious about certain things in education. It's really a pleasure to be able to talk about some of that today. That's awesome. So what, yeah, given that, what, what do you actually do? What does a day look like for you? Because we're here and we're going to talk about books and things, but like you're teaching, you're a mom, like do you actually? Yeah, well, in a, in a pandemic, um, I, if I was at my office at Surrey campus, which is on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Kwatlen, Katsi and Semiamu peoples, I would be, I would have an office and I'd be doing research and engaging with other adults, but I'm on the same lands, also known as Surrey in British Columbia, and I just 
put some laundry in um, and I had online meetings this morning and I have an additional consult afterwards. So yeah, I'm teaching and I am trying to envision how I can pursue the research I want to do in this new climate. Teaching is 40% of my position, research is 40% of my position, and then I engage in different service activities for the remainder of my position. I do tend to spend a lot of time on Zoom at the moment. Yes, don't we all? I actually showered today for this one, though. I feel kind of like we're doing right now. (laughs) Right? Isn't it funny? That's how we're, we're doing it. But we can connect coast to coast, which I love you know that we're bringing everyone yes. in okay so you you teach and you research and a product of that research is that um you write books which i have to say are just absolutely engaging which is funny because the one we're mm. looking at um that we just launched in the uh, bookstore for the outdoor learning store uh, as a resource for educators or teachers or parents even uh, is engaging imagination in ecological education um can you tell me what that's about? Yeah, that, I mean, I've been a teacher for a long time. I think I identify first and foremost as a teacher, whether I'm teaching adults or children um, I'm in the business of education. And when I was uh, teaching at an considered at the time inner city school in Langley, a high school, I had phenomenal students. Like they inspired me every day with their, with their inspiration and their intelligence. And there's something happened there that just shocked me with, what I learned was a complete sense of disaffection for these students towards the natural world. These were the students that went on to university and had full full scholarships. They were brilliant. They were good human beings, but they didn't have any emotional connection to environmental issues. Hmm. And it stunned me and scared me. And at that point I was ready to go on and do some doctoral work. And that was the question I pursued in my research was what is required to educate for ecological understanding. And by that, I mean, a sense of care and concern for the natural world, knowledge of natural systems, but more than just knowing is having a commitment to live differently. Mm. So that's what I studied in my doctoral work. And the work resulted, I guess it's resulted in three books. The first was quite a theoretical one, which I think my mother is the only one who owns a copy um, because <laughs> nobody wants to read it. I, I actually and... copy too. <laughs> Oh, just, you? Okay. Yeah, That's I'm, exciting. I'm a, I'm so a number very, two fan. It's a very theoretical one, and it wasn't, I mean, I want to work with practitioners. I want to get this work out, and I want to see more learners outside. So the second book, which is the one that's now being offered with the Outdoor Learning School, was one where I took the ideas from the research, you know, uh, this idea of imaginative and ecological teaching practices. What does that look like? Well, I took it to a project which was an outdoor environmental school that was being developed in Maple Ridge. This is a school with no walls. This is a school, literally age grouping outside 100% of the time. So when I was part of the curriculum design group, I thought, well, how would we teach kids to read outside all the time? Because we have this image in our heads of reading requires sitting in books and desks uh. um, or something. So a whole part of that is applying the principles of imaginative eco-ed to teaching someone to read and also then developing the reading skills of those who are already reading. And another part of that is, is a whole big science thing. So that is, is, has been widely received and for people that want that mix of theory and practice and how do we engage imagination? How do we engage those cognitive tools to grow imagination while we're connecting to the natural world? But it still wasn't enough. So the the walking curriculum is the one that's most recent and most accessible. Tiny little book, big Mm. punch to it, I think. Absolutely. And it started with just on on a blog post. So 
what are five ways in which we can take learning outside in ways that expand and enrich the learning and then can be developed further inside. But how can place contribute to the teaching of a topic? And then five became 10 in another post and then 15 and 20. So after about 60, someone nudged me and said, you need to create a book out of this. And so that is the, they all come together in this little book called the walking curriculum, which really is an exemplification of that original research about what is required to get people to have can care and concern for the natural world, live differently, and sort of um, have a more connected view of humankind and the more than human world. And it does, it does do that. I don't think I've ever had, yeah, such a book with just these really, you know, a couple of bullet points or a single paragraph that I can, as in my role as an environmental educator with like my business, Stoke on Science, I take hundreds of kids out. We are one paragraph that does me three hours, right? Because it, it, it's very it just efficient. builds. Yes, exactly. I like that. Um, in, and to further support that, I just did an all day outdoor winter sort of wonder walking sort of camp with kids um, outside of school. We walked 30,000 steps. I would, you know, I've obviously, I've got my pedometer on. That's how I know that I've had a good day if I get my 10,000. But these kids are five, six, seven, and they will quite happily, I can tell you, walk 30,000 steps if they are engaged and just being out there. And, And I took all the ideas from the book and it just... It's making my life easy. Very glad to hear that. I love getting feedback like that because I I don't really know. Um, I do do know. More and more educators are telling me what what they're noticing with the work. But if you want just those activities, the walking curriculum. If you want to know why I've paired a walk about lines with a sense of finding a dramatic tension or why we've paired a walk about borders with an activity that uses mental imagery, then... You can dig into those other publications or a whole bunch of free articles online. There's a ton of free stuff. Then you will get a sense of why images grow and engage imagination, how our imaginations change through our lives. So this is where I have learned an immense amount from Dr. Kieran Egan's work in imaginative education Mm. because he has done great work on noticing the ways in which our imaginations grow and change in our lives and actual tools that we can employ in teaching to engage, grow, and develop imagination. So this is who I initially worked with and to develop the imaginative ecological approach. And yeah, it's a it's a wonderful approach. Um, I do like that, that it comes um, away just from that sort of very academic, I mean, there's, there's underpinnings of it, but I feel like it's totally accessible for people that are not really interested in getting into the- That is the... my hope. <laughs> yeah, it's very accessible. The language is, is there. I really, this is um, work for any educator that would like to move their teaching beyond the walls of a classroom in ways that have profound impact on what they're doing in the curriculum. You do not need a, a special degrees in biology or botany to begin to connect with the place in important ways. So that's the audience. Absolutely. I find that, yeah, there's so many different walks in the walking curriculum that are, you know, deeply explained in engaging imagination that you know that's talking about art when we're looking at surfaces there's physics with motion walks we look at geography and weather maths with shapes I just feel like whatever you're trying to teach and engage with and you can do multiples of these within one it's so sort of multi multi-curricular which I just think is the way of the world now right we it's difficult to separate things one 
after the other. I really like the way that it's sort of, yeah, multidisciplinary and it feels very, very engaging when you're out there. Separating things out is something we do very well from a Western perspective. And and I think it's important to note (laughs) that my work does come from a Western perspective of of imagination. And there's a lot of research and and scholarship around ecological and environmental forms of thinking within Western scholarship. However, I mean, if we really want to understand connection to place and land, we need to learn from Indigenous pedagogies and Indigenous worldviews. So um, it's been part of my work since finishing my doctoral studies to to expand and enrich and understand my understanding of an Indigenous perspective, an Indigenous worldview, because connection to land and place has been at the heart of that way of thinking for time immemorial. We have so much we can learn from that. And I think the idea that pedagogy is compartmentalized and in disciplines is a a very Western way of doing things. It's It's only one way of thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the way that... your books and and the way that the sort of activities unfold um are very organic and they follow on from each other and and it's sort of a investigative way of of viewing the world and then there is this deep appreciation as you do it and me too I'm I'm on my journey of discovery and understanding with indigenous ways of knowing and everything that I I'm getting from that as far as it's you know it's not egocentric where there's just humans at the center of this universe and the whole natural world just swims around us we are just a cog in the ecosystem wheel and I I really feel that when I've followed some of your activities and I'm out there that we all feel sort of at at one with the with the place that we're in and you know for somebody who is you know clearly so knowledgeable and academic and you know, building these curriculum for you to create something that emotively attaches to me and to the kids I'm with. In in writing about an imaginative approach to teaching, I really employed it in the books. Mm. So you, you should be engaged by the books because if on the one hand we're saying story shaping and imagery and metaphor and all of these things are what engages human imagination, then ideally, yes, by using them in these books, like a lot, they are things that stick with us and make us um, lean into the content, for sure. Um, one thing that's unique, I think, well, unique in terms of Western ways of thinking about learning, not unique in terms of Western e- ecological approaches, and certainly not in terms of Indigenous ways of knowing and being, is the way we conceptualize place. Mm-hmm. So at first, when I work with educators, I talk about why do we want to go outside? Well, we want to become more familiar with the natural local cultural context, natural and cultural context, become more familiar. But beyond that, we don't just want to become more familiar with this other. We want to begin to open ourselves up to noticing what the place affords us. What is it affording us for learning? Mm. We're only part way on our way to what Indigenous teaching is that actually, if we were actually open to what was around us and we didn't have this sort of skin and clothes sense of self, Mm. we would see that place is co-teacher place is silent teacher so at first that's too much i mean even as i started studying place-based education but ultimately this is what we can learn from indigenous pedagogies is that the place and the place and land and human connection to place and land offers profound learning and it's it is gifts right it's it's just that the epic gifts that you see of, of even like the sound of a crunchy leaf in fall underneath your foot just 
invigorates you or like the first spring bud on on a tree like it's a gift and I feel like yeah the more we're outside doing this imaginative ecological education then the more appreciation there is and you know the research is there that if kids care if they're connected um then they will look after it they will become stewards of it in the future so you know I'm I'm totally supportive of that without a doubt where did you grow up where where do you live now and where where did you grow up so I do live now in a place we all know more as Surrey um Vancouver but I grew up on the island in Mm -hmm. on an indigenous lands outside of Victoria called Saanich they are called Saanich now and it was Fairly idyllic. I had the great fortune of growing up on a on a piece of acreage. Um, I couldn't see a house any direction, and it, we didn't do anything with the land except run it and, and explore it. And it was covered with arbutus trees. So, and and my parents were environmentally conscious. My dad was one of the early people working in his organization to bring an environmental consciousness to um, his organization. And um, we were just. I just grew up like many people did in the. 70s and 80s like come back before it gets dark and just do something when you're out there free to explore exactly and it was just magical different different areas became magical kingdoms for me um and we had rope swings that we swung out over these anyway it was it was a beautiful childhood and I think I wrote about it somewhere that the Arbutus seemed to have a much more profound impact on me than I realized because um, when my parents uh, decided to downsize and they gave me a big box of my schoolwork from when I was in grade five and I was appalled they'd even consider getting rid of that. Um, But (laughs) I looked through it and there was so much evidence of my interest in Arbutus trees. I was sketching them on the insides of my duotangs. I had clippings of Arbutus trees. I wrote legends about Arbutus trees. I had forgotten about that. Now that's a whole other issue, but I, I, I was fascinated with these Arbutus trees. And so the dappling light of the Arbutus in summertime and just mm. playing in the peeling of the brand. And, and then of course, I, I used to imagine what happened before me in this place. So it's in many of my presentations, if I have an opportunity to work with educators for a little bit, we talk about the place on this planet that it would break their heart if it became the next, you know, big corporation mar- parking lot, mm. you know, if it, even if you haven't been there in a while, if it no longer existed, if it was paved over, can you think of a place that would break your heart? And I get them to describe that place to someone beside them, but not to name it, just describe it, describe what it was like to be there, describe what you smelled or felt or, and later we would go, we, we would go around and, and name all of these places. And, and I, typically people are in tears. Because yeah. they oh, they they find that these places have a connection to their identities, um, and and it need not be a, an acreage in Saanich. It can be a urban garden in in East Vancouver. It can be it can be a, just a local park. It, we are placemakers. Human beings make place. They take spaces, and we develop emotional connections to them all the time, inside mm. and outside. But what if we paid attention to this practice and cultivated in students an ecological ethos in the way they develop their identity? What if, as they're growing up through grade K through seven, they learn about the curriculum outdoors so much that they, they somehow identify with certain features of the environment? They, they begin to care, not because they're supposed to, but because they can't imagine not caring for those more than human living things or 
non-living things just well it's a part of them then at that point right, right? it becomes so yeah. integral to their sense of being that it's second nature or it, i mean it is human nature i mean my thesis in my undergraduate was i'm a paleoclimatologist so i'm looking at reconstructing past climates and what that involves is looking at strata and finding microfossils what we found was evidence of butchery on woolly rhinoceros bones in the uk and following all these places yeah i thought it was pretty cool Four hundred thousand years old ancient hominian settlements and that's it a sense of place they were there you know because the landscape afforded them the kind of things that they would need there was a river running past and um open space all of that kind of stuff but I feel like it's it's inherent in us. It's it's part of our sort of deep humanity mm. to to have a place to connect to it. And I mean, we keep saying the word connection. And I think twenty twenty and what's going to happen in twenty twenty one is um, further supported. Is that connection is so important, mm-hmm. and we can do this electronically. And I feel so wonderful connecting to you across our country. But you know, when things really were tough and my entire city converged on our green walking path area that goes around these sort of awesome wetlands. But you can see, it was almost like people were returning to their true selves where they would go out there and just, they didn't have to be doing anything. It was just like, oh, I'm free out here. Hello there. Are you looking to be part of a great... Just kidding. That's not my real voice. This is Ian. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a non-profit network of environmental educators all around the world. You can join this network for only $32 a year. That includes a subscription to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. Somebody sent me today a little YouTube video that said they studied sort of 75,000 people. They had them view um, images of nature and animals. And at the end of that, they had them determine how much more joyful, curious, full of awe or wonder. And every, it was, it was remarkable. I mean, yes, the idea that we're biophilic. We have an innate connection to the natural world. Unfortunately, sometimes we become biophobic. We become scared <laughs> yeah. by nature. We, you know, we, we have, and this is one thing I really hope that the walking curriculum can change, um, is the idea that certain things in nature are gross. Um, or disgusting, or yuck, or wet. We've just, we've, we, so much of this can be nurtured out. Absolutely. Of, uh, is, is, and making, taking the taboo away from those kind of things. I spend yeah. a lot of time teaching about ecosystems and, and decomposers in particular. Yeah. So we go out and we turn logs over gently so that we can replace yeah. them. And we look for all the grubby bugs and the, the fungi tentacles, which are, There's you know. nothing gross about that. It's absolute wonder. But, but yes. if we've been told that slimy things are gross yeah. and insects are scary, then yeah. we shouldn't be surprised. So this is why elementary schools, educators can have such a profound impact on students. They see them for so many years and have such an opportunity to influence the way they feel being in nature or being outdoors. One thing that Ian does um, that I 
got to look at most recently is um, you're an artist, right? And you do drawings. It's one one um, of the hats. And you told me that you... Well, oh yeah, he, he wears a million very well. But you sent one of your beautiful sketches to me and you said that you don't do it just um, like think of an animal and draw it. But all of your sketches are actually in person. So you've That's captured a moment in nature, which I just think is beautiful because I, as a geographer, am really into getting kids to do field sketches. And I like the idea of going for a walk and then journaling or sketching. And just because you just wake up your senses and pay attention, right? As opposed to, you know, I'm as bad as the rest of them. I go for a cross-country ski and I'm headphones in and I'm listening to a podcast maybe one of the other green teacher podcasts or um jillian's awesome tedx talk yeah you know why not Let, let's lay on thick i'm british it's what we do but i'll be out there you know distracted but the other day i went out i was first there it was just getting light and um as i'm along this it snowed above the grooming and so it was perfectly smooth and then there was just these tracks going off and and oh, I think I found snowshoe hair and then some kind of cervid. I have got an awesome book that I need to, I took photos actually so that I could compare it. But I spent about 10 minutes just looking and following this trail and, and it had crossed the sort of cross country track up into the, the sort of forest above me. And I just, I don't know, I sat there and then I was like, I wonder what it would look like if I was a moose or a deer and, and how would this landscape feel to me? And then, you know, I just, yeah. That, that example really conveys one of the things I talk about in one of this earlier books about being active versus activeness. I describe activeness as a principle. Um, deep ecologist Arne Nace talks about the fact that we have two kind of ways in which we engage with the natural world around us. One is being active. We're out, we're doing a snowshoe because we're trying to stay in shape we play soccer outside, we hike and we bike, and we just use the outdoors for those reasons. And we love it. And we want to keep nature because we love hiking and biking and skiing. Not always the best way to form a sense of connection. And so when right. he describes activeness, and this is a part of the, the book and the work where I try to talk about slowing down mm. and, and really focusing on the body's engagement, that is sort of a sense of an internal relationship. And it may oddly enough, come through pausing. Activeness is when we sort of are much more aware of our actual physical connection to the natural world around us. And it's, it's almost if you've had that experience of lying on the grass or the beach and looking at the sky and having that momentary inability to determine where your skin ends and where the sand begins or where your, where your, mm. you know, your body ends and the, and the grass. It, it, it's this mo those moments where we feel our, our immersion in the world is what I want to, I'm after with activeness. So these walks have a lot of pauses in them because with intentional, intentionally to help remember the body. We so quickly forget the body when we learn to speak and then to read and write. There are all these layers that get in the way of our body's engagement with the world. Mm. So it's very important. Um, we talked earlier about why walks, why walks in particular, because, and it was, American naturalist Gary Snyder, who said, sense of place develops on foot and with imagination in childhood. There's something about the immediacy of being in an environment. One thing I want to bring up that came up in an interesting conversation the other day was 
is it only walking? What about those um, colleagues and friends of ours that are unable to walk? Yeah. It's not the walking. Mm. It it's, isn't the walking. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it, you, can, you can roll, you can sit. You can you slide. Can yes, you can do whatever, whatever it is. But I, it's funny, language is so limiting. The moving curriculum, that would totally send the wrong impression. The exploration curriculum. So it's called the walking curriculum, but it is much more about presence and mm. being out with learning within and place and land. Very different. And, and people have access to different types of place and land, right? Um, oh, yeah. I'm in BC. I've got forests and all that jazz. Ian, you're... Yeah, south, southeastern Ontario, we're in an area with lots of glacial deposits, so lots of ridges and some rolling hills, deep soil, so beautiful forests, black oak savanna, so definitely lots of really kind of locally distinct habitats in the area, which I certainly enjoy exploring, oftentimes sitting and sketching. <laughs> nice. Oh, and Gillian, what's, what is the landscape where you are at this moment? Sort of? Well, I live in a very very suburban area so what about the people that say well i don't i don't have a huge nature reserve yeah, next high to rise. Yeah, yeah that's that's and my thought you know people in the uk and east london who are in 37 towers to the sky yeah. you know and i think we have to think about it less about wilderness and more about wildness and that's what mm. rachel carson says within developing that sense of wonder there's wildness around us more more wildness than there is us and we just need to be aware of it and so even in um, a, a playground or a schoolyard that you might think is impoverished in terms of green things there's something to be said for being outdoors and i think that's that's really important I've, it sort of follows on to what you say in the walking curriculum and in imagine engaging imaginations you don't need a bunch of tools you don't need a bunch of materials or equipment this is just just your body and your mind and a bit of an investigative spirit and so for me this is a great lean towards a curriculum that is inclusive and can be diverse in location or age or whatever it is that you're doing and I think that's incredibly important to move away from you know in order to go out you're going to need these $700 hiking boots and walking poles and these waterproof jackets although in most of our country it's they, they can be useful they can definitely be useful um but there is you know there's thrift stores there's lending libraries there's there's the opportunity I think what I feel like is that yeah there are always going to be barriers but this means yeah, you don't need to get on a bus as well. Busing during COVID, like schools aren't, some schools aren't doing that to keep the kids safe. But you can walk and find, I love this about finding cracks, cracks in the architecture and things to follow. I just, oh, that, you know, that looks like the, the lines of, of a raindrop down a window. You know, you can you can find that, like that metaphor, that simile across it. And yeah, I'm, I'm finding it very engaging when I, when I utilize it. Good, I'm so pleased to hear that feedback. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. Not to mention educator resource books to help you take your environmental or outdoor education to the highest level. Proudly brought to you by the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, www.outdoorlearningstore.ca, BC's non-profit resource store.
In this era of standardized tests and so much pressure to get into colleges and universities, have you ever had anyone sort of come and say, you know, this is great, I want to use this, but my students need to get 85% to get into X program at university? And, and if so, you know, how would you respond to it? How does this fit into that context? Well, it's interesting to get a question like that. It's really about underlying beliefs and values about what education is for. But I can I can tell you about a quest, similar question. I was doing a talk uh, for quite a large conference about um, emotional engagement for learning in higher education. So I was talking about how we can use imagination and tools because mention the word imagination and the question comes up, well, that's great, but I have a curriculum to quote get through like language like that is just so revealing of somebody's perspective but in this case I was talking about um, imagination and this is and I I know for most listeners we think about imagination mostly in terms of children in terms of make-believe in terms of fantasy and fairies truthfully Mm. yeah oh yeah that's certainly not how I'm thinking about it I'm talking about the most profound way in which human beings learn which is for example through the story form and Mm. it's the way in which we remember anything yep the way the poetics of memory all rely on the imagination so if we think of before the written word all those ways in which in mythology in which stories and cultural contexts were con- continued and remembered has a lot to do with the features of imagination so i was suggesting in higher education if we want learning to be meaningful and memorable we need to use these tools at the end of it someone stood up and it was a big crowd and they said Um, I really appreciated your talk today, and I think it's really interesting, and it's really fun. But you know what? I'm in science. I'm going to be going to med school, and I just need to learn. I I just need to learn what's in the course. Mm. So I really don't have time for this. And I I was a little bit cheeky, and I said, if you're my doctor, I want you to remember what you learned. That is what the imagination does. Now, I'm not saying I always answer questions in, in that way. That was a satisfying one because oh. we forget that imagination <laughs> is at the heart of memory. Okay, so now let's go back to your yeah, it's neuroscience. question, Ian. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Mary Helen Imardino Yang's work on affective neuroscience. We yeah. only remember the things that move us affectively. Okay, yes. so what if we kind of put aside our industrial industrial views of learning for a moment and think about how human beings learn best. They, we are per-thinkers. We perceive and we feel and we think. So per-thinkers will do much more learning and remember much more if, in fact, the things they're learning are shaped in ways that engage their imaginations. Absolutely. Yeah, but I don't have time. I've got to get through all these things. Well, I guarantee you, you're not getting through much because nothing will be remembered. So, and I don't think they're antithetical. I do not think that imagination mm-hmm. is in any way at odds with reason or logic. And, and we can go into that. We don't have time to go into that. But um, Wordsworth <laughs> Big said, rabbit hole. imagination is reason in her most exalted mood. We oh, do not have yeah. to think that the imagination is antithetical to academic learning. It certainly isn't. The kind of learning I'm talking about when I talk about imaginative and ecological education, I'm talking about academically rigorous work, but it is work that is shaped so that the students learning are learning with their emotions on so that they remember it. And so I just don't think it's antithetical. It does open up a big rabbit hole about how much can we get through. And the question is, are we getting through much at all if this is our mentality about schooling? Well, exactly. I, so I would answer, I would probably answer in this big muddled way I just did, but then I go back and say, I just don't know if that's a good question because 
I don't know if we want to continue and perpetuate that kind of thinking about it. Wow. That's, I mean, that's deep, but that's sort of, that's, that's rocking the paradigm, right? It's destructuring what people have told us is that if you achieve certain letters, shaped grades, that you are successful. And I know that not to be the case. There's so much um, norm reference grading still in higher education. And I just don't, I don't agree with it. I mean, I, I want, I'm somebody as an educator in higher education. I want every student to to take every opportunity they can to show me what they know and have freedom to express what they know. And my responsibility is to make the learning as imaginatively and emotionally engaging for them as possible. And this is in my graduate teaching. So it's a different view of, well, that's too many A's in this class. It doesn't fit. The conversations (laughs) don't align. Yeah. No, and that sort of emotional an imaginative way of things it's surely it's 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 problem solving that's what we need is we need you know this thinking outside the box but people that can look at abstract ideas and create new structures new ways of being new ways of thinking new ways of creating technology engineering all of that stems from imagination i have a brilliant book i just read Stephen asthma the evolution of imagination you have to read it it's a brilliant book he talks about the improvisational imagination um, and it, he describes it all in six acts of a jazz quartet. And it's it all, the metaphor is improvisation. He talks about the evolution of storytelling in the world and how that was a massive way in which imagination grew. But he says one of the reasons why we, we don't often think about the fact that we're not just living in the world of what is, we're living in a world of what ifs and possibilities. And we're making decisions at every turn that require the improvisational imagination. So the imagination is much more at the core of who we are and what we do as human beings than we tend to think about it. As for kids, only for artists, it's much more profound for human beings. So a lot of what I do is to really try to open up the conversation about imagination. I've been told I should stop using the word imagination in my publications because most people won't read them unless they're elementary school teachers or artists. And that's part of the problem. Mm. Um, I'm not an elementary school teacher. I'm not an artist. I'm trying to help us better understand as a culture why we need to pay more attention to imagination as adults. Absolutely. And sort of relinquishing, I feel like, I don't know, in life as I go through it in work and play and everything, you know, I'm a bit of a control freak and I try and box things and and hold on to them and make endless lists and plans and then the universe laughs at me wholeheartedly and throws lots of um, spanners or monkey wrenches in my pathway (laughs) Um, and I feel that you know my imagination the sort of like that okay I can imagine I can I can see an alternative route here I can adapt I can evolve, I can change. I feel like it's integral to part of that is being able to step outside of your exact current state. So it's not, I don't understand why it's not central in the sort of lexicon. Like facts aren't as, they're not as novel as they used to be. I mean, in, in this age of information, it's not like you go to school to get the facts or like buy your encyclopedias from like the traveling salesperson's like hello we've got a great set of a to j like it just it's not that's not the case anymore like i remember when i was in art history classes it was memorize the state memorize the artist memorize it's like all right starry starry night van gogh 
and I actually forget the date, which is maybe embarrassing. But, Shame on you. But Shame. maybe that's Did the you, point. You didn't wasn't... have an emotional exactly. attachment to that exactly. painting. Um, and yeah, so it it seems like it's more applicable in today's world where information is all around us. Now, yes, I know there is a lot of false information and that's a whole other discussion and you know about credibility and so on, but mm. you, you can get credible information easier than ever before. So if you're not going to school just to get the facts mm. why not engage your emotion it, it's more important one thing i'm doing right now and maybe i'll throw it out to you both on this podcast and listeners is it's, it's in an article i've just put out for publication and it one of the reasons i think we have trouble understanding imagination and certainly within the realm of leadership educational leadership is that if you were to google it you get you know balloons and children and painting <laughs> and you get all these images of imagination so in it i suggest that we need to imagine Think about imagination as like soil. So imagination is that fertile ground out of which grow innovation and creativity. We like to jump to the product. We like to jump to the flower rather than look at the soil out of which it grows. So the, the usefulness of thinking about imagination as like soil is that the, the fruit, the things we want, the produce come rely on that soil. We can cultivate the soil. Hmm. We can enrich the soil. The soil is differently fertile depending on context. I mean, mm. it's, it, it's a metaphor that no metaphor works perfectly, but it's odd to think of imagination as like dirt, ground, but yeah. it is much more profound. I want to bring imagination down to earth with a, an idea that is like the soil and we can picture it. It isn't just supporting me. It's connecting us. There's a collective imagination as well. So, We'll see. We'll see. We always don't know what reviewers will think about it, but I'm hoping that we can talk differently about imagination and use language that shows that it's underneath and the things that we most value are rooted in it, rooted in imagination. That's my hope. I think those metaphors all work pretty well, actually. Yeah, that was pretty beautiful. I'm, I'm struggling to come back from that. I'm just sort of imagining myself sort of growing roots down and then what's, what flower's going to come out mm. in the next year or so. That, that's, yeah. that's pretty... Uh, pretty beautiful imagery there well i'll let you know how, how what the oh, yes. blind review says of it at the end <laughs> peer-reviewed research yeah. you, you touched briefly on the fact of talking about yeah quality of information i just finished teaching grade 11 12s about climate change and gave them a bunch of resources and asked them to read it and highlight maybe the positive views and the negative views that were within it and whether they were balanced and then my final question is um okay where did it come from and they're like what it's like on your bit of paper, who wrote it? What's their accreditation? Are they a specialist? Do they have a vested interest in this? Mm-hmm. And yeah, being able to to differentiate good information from bad information and actually involves just critical thinking. It's difficult to instill that now because we just, we get bombarded with so much information. We just absorb it as opposed to thinking like, is this right? Does that make sense? Yes, does this person want me to think this for a particular way, mm. a reason? Yeah, I think it's really important to develop skills like that. And and I feel like a connection to our natural places, if you're using that mind from a very young age, it will, again, it will become inherent. It will be a second nature to you. Stoked on Science, providing engaging, educational and fun programmes across the Columbia Basin. 
Is your school or organisation looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programmes that go beyond the basic science topics like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going. If so, visit www.stokedonscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programmes for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. You talk about education that focuses on relationships or context and I feel that we you know technologically more advanced and connected like this and I don't know about you two but I'm on my phone all the time and um you know whether it's Twitter or other social media or or messages from people but I feel like there there can be a disconnect in adults now who have moved away from being out in nature for the sheer sake of it and I feel that your books especially the walking curriculum like for parents particularly maybe you know like they say they don't have time if you've got 10 minutes you can go for a walk I feel like the book is a way for parents to connect with their kids um so it's not just for educators it's not esoteric it's it's a it's a book where a parent can walk out with a child and they can share in that experience together no I think so I'm the I was really pleased at the beginning of the pandemic to um offer the e-version of the book it's it's not free it's like four dollars or something but Mm. Free downloads, and there's 881 downloads in two days. And whoop, whoop. Um, my feedback from parents, I mean, it is written, it does start by talking about teaching and all this stuff. Hmm. But the actual walks themselves, if I had any more time, I would love to write something for parents because mm-hmm. there is no reason why we can't enrich the time we spend together as families outdoors by, by developing and engaging our own imaginations. So I have had good feedback from parents that I've heard who, who downloaded it and explored it and used it. And it's about slowing down and taking the time to engage differently with the world around us. Why? So we can begin to connect more profoundly and maybe become more aware of the richness that surrounds us. And put your phone away for 10 minutes you know just just mm. turn it off Do it's not true now it. i was asked i was asked to talk about how we might incorporate tech into the walking curriculum mm. for reasons of equity and access yeah. and for that yeah. i think it's profound so if more of our learners could use technology to be able to participate in these activities i'm completely on board for that 100 percent if we could use it only to increase equity but i for those students that can engage with the natural world without the technology i would prefer that it wasn't used all the time yeah i did see the rise of when the sort of pandemic first started and of these sort of virtual field trips mm-hmm. and uh, like mm-hmm. various different museums I'm, I'm sure i could find some links to post below but of where you can yes you go inside and then they take you around and and you get to go and explore an environment you probably wouldn't go to anyway like hawaii there was a hawaiian volcano that they'd filmed you know with drone and helicopter videography and i thought that was pretty amazing and even that is envisioning yourself somewhere else right it's taking yourself outside of your immediacy and i think that's pretty solid skills to have in life Richard Louv's work on, you know, nature deficit disorder and things, mm. a lot of research showing that even, I mean, there's a certain reason why walls of hospitals are painted this color because it's a color that's supposed to soothe us. It's more <laughs> green. And I mean, even showing pictures of nature 
And even as I mentioned earlier, seeing pictures of animals can increase our sense of curiosity. So there's definitely value there, but I just don't think anything replaces physically moving outdoors. And you do not need the field trip forms if you're doing this <laughs> on schoolyards, right? You're doing it on schoolyards. We don't have, with, with the amount of paperwork required to take kids on field trips, which are wonderful, and I'm not downplaying that, but we can be doing ecological teaching all year round. Oh, if yeah. our students have the right clothing, they have raincoats and whatever, boots and whatever, we can go out all year round um, and not have to worry about the field trip forms, for example. Mm. If we can make that schoolyard an extension of the classroom. Having, doing these walks and engaging in the imagination outdoors is not recess. It's not a break from learning. It is an mm. extension that must then be developed indoors or after the walk, or else the students won't see it as connected to the learning they're doing. Mm. There needs to be accountability built in. And I talk about how you can prepare for the walks, how you can develop them, how you can extend the learning after. Because having been a classroom teacher for quite some time, and I, would, I say classroom because in those years, I didn't take my students outside. It wasn't until after I stopped working in the high school that I thought of these different ways of doing things and, and what would I be comfortable doing as someone who didn't consider herself an outdoor educator. I didn't. Mm. So it's very, very important that we can take the move outdoors. We need administrative support. We need parental support. So we want to send letters home saying we will be learning outside. There's plenty of research to support why it's pedagogically valuable for anybody that needs that support. But we don't just move them outdoors and say and think it's going to go well. Kids yes. tend to get it with a break from learning right now. But maybe that won't be the case in five years or ten years if, if they've always learned part of their curriculum outdoors. If they've always learned to appreciate and slow down and connect with the natural world. That's the goal mm. in the long run. And, and there's so many people that are doing great work. Um, I locally here, there's the Wild About Vancouver organization led by Hartley Bannock. Hartley Bannock, yeah. Yeah. And then there's Megan Zenny's work, Room to Play is brilliant. Mm. Um, there's we obviously, if you haven't read Braiding Sweetgrass by oh. Robin Wall Kimmerer, those kinds of works and, and all of the great work that's happening in Indigenous education and the scholarship that's emerging there. If we can work together, I think we can do amazing things. I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I'm I'm from the southeast of England originally, and we actually have quite a lot of green space. But I couldn't believe it when I came over to Canada years ago, and now this is my permanent home. But the quality of engagement with the teachers where I live, anyway, it, I'm in Revelstoke, but just willing to go out and explore and they're building outdoor classrooms in every single um we've got three elementary schools and every single one is getting one and teachers that are into it I am um, saying what you were doing about it being a part of learning I go out and do a, a program with wild site called nature through the seasons and it's schoolyard and we repeat the same kind of um, imaginative things. We wake up our senses and get our owl ears, our owl, owl eyes and our deer ears on and, and really engage. But we do the same thing all the, in four different spots through the season. And then the teacher takes them out every month at least to the same spot and we have this you know one tree that we engage with and 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 make friends with and and see how it devolves and and develops and it's exactly what you're talking about it's just they learn they learn so much when they're out there and then they come back and they're telling me about it or you know and talking about texture and abstract ideas and and real ideas well you know where where does where does he get his water from? And we talk, then we get into the hydrological cycle. It just, 
it's steps towards greatness with every step awesome. that you take on one of your walks, you know? I love to hear the practices happening. I don't have my own class at the moment. Oh, I'll send you the thousands of pictures. I mean, I'm terrible because I'm always taking pictures, I but I'm so obsessed. From little kids. With, I got you know, letters from two classrooms of kids that wrote about just oh. thanking me for the walking curriculum stuff. Oh gosh, that's that's moving, isn't it? I actually, I wanted to share this with you about a student that I had who's 11 and on the autism spectrum and came out on a walking curriculum kind of field trip. And not only did the teacher pull me aside and said that is the longest that that student in 10 years has ever stayed in our class and, and been a part of the learning team, the kid pulled me aside and he was like, that was the best day of school I've ever had. And we were in the forest and... I, I had yeah, I had a little weep in the corner for a minute because I was like, this is very deep. But there are lots of kids. Um, and thanks to the forest and, adults, and to you, like um, all the teachers for that student on that day. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of love and passion in this, I say industry, but in this nice. group. But I just think there's, whether it's just because we're better at diagnosing it or whether it is increasing, but there are an ever-increasing number of kids who have some form of a learning disability or have complex learning needs or just the starting to see that that rigid classroom structure doesn't work for them, you know? And I feel like those kids in particular who are so bright and so exuberant and full of energy and full of ideas, when when given the space to share it, which I think outdoors does, you know, you can be loud, the sound doesn't hit all the walls and bounce in. It's just, it's magic. It's, it's, it's so important. And um, yeah, I'm Fantastic. seeing it in action every day. A final question for me is, does your, like you're talking about your kids and stuff, like, do, do you get the opportunity to connect your work with your mm-hmm. family life? Like, is it is like, are you all just out there, oh, like, gosh, picking no, I've got two regular teenagers. Nature. Teenagers, you know, no. <laughs> Um, I wish. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much losing the battle, the social media battle as we speak, but I do try. But no, the books are all dedicated to Ella and Chloe and, and their sense of wonder. I just, may they never lose their sense of mm. wonder. And I think they know the passion of this work for me, but they've grown up in a suburban environment. They didn't have acreage to run around in, and it bothers me as, as a parent what that means in the long run for them. But when we have any kind of time as a family, I do want us to move outdoors. I, I do believe that we feel better when we're outdoors, mm. when we explore our local parks. They know if they're spending a day with mom that we, we need to go walking as well as getting tea and, and doing those kinds of things. So I do try to incorporate it, but I have a I have a regular family, good kids, but regular old teenagers. I'd love to think that we were picking berries joyfully, not arguing, that kind of thing. But we love each other, and I do my best to keep their sense of wonder and curiosity alive by tapping into the wildness that's in our community. Absolutely. That's awesome. I'd be remiss to say that, yeah, my inspiration for the work that I do with sea bean and and my education came from wandering through thorndon country park with my dad through all the seasons through hammering rain and you know the other members of my family maybe at times didn't want to be out there and we would just go slogging through and you know make all the noises do you do you feel like you're going to pass that on ian in your next oh absolutely yeah, I, I see you doing it, Ian. I see, I see it as your goal. It is. Well, I learned a lot from my dad just being out in nature and puttering around, as mm. they call it. And our family is expanding by one mm. in June. I, I like to say we're a new person's moving into our house. So. Nice. 
congratulations. Yeah, so lots of outdoor time. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah. greedy. Right. And... <laughs> no, I think it's, I don't know, I'm optimistic about the future. I mean, my email inbox is just full and, you know, reached out to you, Gillian, and you were like, yep, you know, you're busy, you're successful, you're doing a million things and you've still got time to talk about this. And I feel like there is so much passion and funding like I don't know where you are but like in the Columbia Basin like we have the Columbia Basin Trust and other organizations who are just so incredible at funding like non-profit work that we do and things like what we're doing with the outdoor learning store and and bringing educator resources in that like all of the profits go back into environmental education I feel pretty lucky to be doing this I at think this there's moment. an appetite and I, I mentioned that a lot of teachers have been mm taking learning outside during the pandemic for reasons of germs, you know, initially, oh, yeah. but I, I really yeah. do believe that the, the value of it <laughs> has been noted. And I believe that it might stick and the pandemic may have been the situation oh, that yeah. led more people to open their sense of getting outside. And I talk about getting outside, but also getting outside the ways we believe our teaching has to be. So for those people that are interested, I mean, there's a mm. ton of resources. If you go to imagine ed, www.educationthatinspires.ca. That would be HTTP, not HTTPS, strange. And yes. also Circe, uh, Circe website, the Center for Imagination, Research, Culture, and Education. There's a lot of resources. And I think that the more people request this kind of learning in their districts, the more it'll happen. Mm. And we have both uh, the walking curriculum and engaging imagination and ecological education practical strategies for teaching available at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. And again, yes, all that's of the brilliant. I'm so pleased that I'm it. part of that now. That's great. It's a pretty cool organization. I mean, I'm obviously I work for that, but I do that because they're awesome. But you know, with the support of green teacher who are basically making this podcast work and just spreading the word I don't know about you Ian but I am so thankful um for you being here Gillian for you sharing your incredible expertise and in a way that's really articulate because some really well that means a lot I think I think if I count the ums (laughs) I'll count quite a few but thank you so much for having me I appreciate it and I look forward to following the podcast all these sessions I'll listen to avidly so Thank you so much. Thanks, Gillian. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars. And cbean, that's c-b-e-e-n.org for a range of environmental resources including professional development opportunities, grant information, and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stotonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat. Mm-hmm.